in discussing the book of Revelation, the more difficult task is that of unwinding false, erroneous, and traditional interpretations. When God established the written scriptures, when the Holy Spirit breathed the written scriptures, it it was with an understanding already uh, in mind. God knew from the beginning, even before he created man, God knew that man would fall, would, would separate himself from his father. And God also knew that he would redeem man. The lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. With that said, the entire scriptures were set up to reach man in his fallen state, but to bring him back to the intended state of redemption. To that end, everything written in the scriptures have a duality to them. What I mean is this, God understood that man would not naturally know the ways of God in his condition of decline because the carnal mind is enmity against God and cannot understand the things of God. With that said, the Bible may be understood on one level at at a surface level. That is analogized to, in Scripture, as a condition of milk, food for an infant. But since God knows the end of every matter from the beginning, and since the intent of God is to bring man from the state of infancy to a state of maturity, the scriptures are also established on this other level of revelation. The natural level at which you may understand scripture because of infancy and immaturity is type and shadow. It's primarily analogies. It's somewhat like thinking about the parables of Jesus which are analogous to deeper things as only functioning at the level of the parable. So in that case you would see, uh, for example, the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who sowed seed in a field and talks about the different kinds of seed that might be sown or the different soils upon which the seed, uh, into which the seed fell. It would be as if we got into a discussion of agronomy, of agriculture, to talk about uh, the possibilities of how a seed might uh, germinate depending on the soil in which it fell and not ever see that it has a, a much greater meaning 
the meaning of the types of responses that people are capable of generating uh, depending on the, the conditions of their heart when the Word of God, which is the seed, falls into that state of their preparedness. So everything in the scriptures do work on both levels. The child in his or her understanding equates the meaning of scripture to the the barest surface level and that is to be carnally minded and to miss entirely the meaning of scripture. The unfortunate truth is that the book of Revelation has been historically viewed through those lenses with would-be and so-called prophets and commentators analogizing to human history. A good example would be when the scriptures speak as we said earlier on in the development of the teachings on the book of Revelation that there were locusts and the sound of their wings were like horses running into battle. And of course more modern commentators say, well of course that's an analogy to helicopters. Well it's that kind of silliness that has continued to clothe and shroud the book of Revelation in that sort of opaque view. The book of Revelation is actually a summary of all that has been said in the scripture reaching its culmination. But the understanding of it is when the cycle of that revelation reaches its apogee and as it were, things in heaven and things on earth coincide at the point of the return of the Lord or in the events leading up to the return of the Lord. Needless to say, prophecies about um, the murder of Jesus, for example, and his resurrection, and the revealing of who it was that was slain to those who slew him and the horror of that revelation when uh, when the understanding comes that they killed the Messiah. But here he is now, the risen Lord returning in triumphant glory and the, the shock and awe, as it were, of that revelation dawning on, upon people at the end of the age. So there has to be a culmination of things at the end of the age. Every outstanding prophecy is fulfilled at the end of the age. There's, there's no time beyond that for the wrapping up of things that were meant to be uh, fulfilled within the age of mankind. Analogies such as God speaking about creating the heavens and the earth in six days and resting on the seventh. Now 
we have established before that these six days are not and could not possibly be six earth days. Why? Because an earth day is the time it takes for the earth to do a complete revolution around its axis. 365 of those revolutions within its orbits uh, constitute a movement around the sun. But for a day, it's the time it takes for the earth to make a complete revolution around its axis. The problem with that, you see, is we don't have the measure of a day. Because in relationship to the sun, which determines uh, a day, day and night, the sun, the moon, and the stars were not created until the fourth day. Now, I don't, I've, I've addressed this extensively before, so I won't go back into it again. The point is that as scriptures speak of evening and morning, not morning and evening. Evening uh, represents the nighttime and morning represents the daytime. So the analogy is when a thing moves from where it's hidden in God to where it is now revealed to the visible realm, that's a day. And it couldn't possibly be measured in a 24-hour day precisely because uh, the, the sun, moon, and stars, pivotal to evening and morning, the sun, moon, and stars were not created until the fourth day. And yet you have, in the beginning God said, the first, in the first day of creation God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Well, how is that measured if there is no sun, moon, and stars? And the answer is, it is not meant to be measured in that way. It is meant to be measured when the, from, in, in this regard, when the thing moves from obscurity to revelation, that constitutes a day. Now then, in the reference to six days, God is setting up different forms of the same analogy. So, the age of mankind is, is 6,000 years, human years. And then the seventh day is a thousand years of human years. So there's six periods and there's a seventh period. As in the case of creation, the seventh period was rest. In fact, the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word for seven. So it's rest. This doesn't mean being asleep. In fact, there is great activity and summary activity, activity that summarizes and concludes God's intentions on this seventh day. Because it is a thousand years, you may add the Latin word for thousand, which is the word meal, 
and a thousand years, mil anum, the Latin word words anus anum are the words for year. So mil anum or milanus milanum, millennium, is what that means. Now, some people, in a very silly way, say that there is no reference in the scriptures to a millennium. Well, there would be if you weren't reading an English version of the scriptures. If, for example, you're reading uh, Jerome's Latin Vulgate, an earlier version of the scriptures in Latin, then it would be the word millennium would be there. But again, what does a thousand mean in another language? That's, that's the point. Many would-be uh, scholars and um, biblical commentators are more commentators based upon, the commentaries are based more upon um, the bias of their audience than any sense of revelation. Now then, in this way I'm introducing the period that comes with the return of the Lord. And I want to, to look at certain particulars that are summarized in and around the arrival of this new period, this uh, seventh period, this time of the sovereignty, the hegemony, the, the non-negotiable principles of divine rule covering the whole earth, the millennium, the millennium. Now we need to step back just a little bit as we read from uh, the book of Revelation um, and, and I, the 20th chapter and I want to say that as you look back at the 19th chapter, we see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords riding forth at the head of the armies of heaven. And he comes forth to do battle with the forces that have been amassed around uh, the leadership of this beast with seven heads and ten horns. Part of this process is to destroy these forces. So the birds of the air are invited to come to a feast upon the flesh of kings. And that's about as graphic a description of the total victory of Jesus the Lord, Jesus Christ, the King, the King at the head of the armies of heaven. Now as He comes, a number of things will have taken place and will be taking place in heaven and on earth. Quite often these things are studied in pieces so we don't see the whole picture and in this time heaven and earth are both involved in the unfolding of these events. Out of heaven, out of heaven, 
comes the Lord at the head of the armies, in heaven and on the earth. There has been a sealing, a sealing as with a stamp, the name of the Father upon the foreheads of all those who constitute the bride of Christ. And they come out of heaven with Him as an army, as an army. They're part of the army of God. Angels are also part of that army and at the head is the Mighty One, the, the, Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes leading this army. As He does, the nations of the earth that have opposed God, that have opposed Christ, are now involved and embroiled in this battle. It would appear that this is not a battle of bows and arrows or or the hurling of um, missiles and the rest of it. It would appear that the battle is a battle of words and that the truth is actually what is the mightiest of the weapons that he employs. Because a sharp sword comes out of his mouth with which he strikes down the nations. So it's not, it's not a gory field of battle. It's a bringing of everything into alignment with what God has previously said. Now, the one who's leading the armies is himself called the Word of God. He is the embodiment of all that is true. And as he is appearing, the truth of who he is and the truth of what he has said leaves the nations naked and without defense. So much so that in another scripture it speaks about how people run to the mountains, to the rocks and say, fall on us and hide us from Him who sits upon the throne, whose judgment has come upon the earth. So powerful is the revealed truth. By the way, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians in the sixth chapter, when he tells us to take up the whole armor of God, Part of the description or one of the, one of the portions of the armor of God uh, that is described as the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of, take to yourselves the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God. Clearly a weapon of offense against the enemy and we see something of how this weapon is deployed effectively against Satan when in the battle in the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by Satan, the three recorded temptations, and in every case 
when Satan sought to deceive him, to prey upon the possibility that his emotions might be available for torment and for, for subterfuge to, by which he may be deceived, Jesus responded in every instance accurately with the proper use of Scripture. Command that these stones be made into bread, Satan said to a hungry man who had been fasting for 40 days and his response, man shall not live on bread alone, cites the Scriptures. Cast yourself down because it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you, lest you should dash your foot against a stone and Jesus' response was, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Um, and, and, and of course the third temptation, fall down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus' response, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. In every case, the reference to Scripture, He stood firmly on the unshakable truth, the immutable truth of what had been spoken. So in this battle leading up to or as the Lord returns in this battle, the sharp sword comes out of His mouth with which to strike down the nations. It is important that we understand that these references, you, you and I have both seen Christian artists drawing Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, that's not how it will look, unfortunately. That's how a carnal view of it may be rendered. And I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong in rendering it that way. I am saying that is not accurate, not in the true meaning of what is implied. So as we move through Scripture and particularly prophetic Scripture, the thing we begin to see is that our thoughts about how these things look must be upgraded from essentially the Sunday school level of understanding that we have been given in our growing up years in church and they need to take on the greater weight, the more profound understanding of the symbolic and that by revelation, imperative. Now then, one of the things that has been widely spoken about is the battle of Armageddon. And I want to introduce this now and prosecute it in a subsequent discussion. Now the battle of Armageddon is a reference to a, a, a great battle that was fought uh, in, the, in, in the days of the judges. In the fifth chapter of the book of Judges, there's a story of Deborah, the only female judge of Israel, and the captain of the host of Israel, Baruch. So Deborah and Baruch 
were engaged in a battle with uh, Jabin, um, uh, the king of Syria, and uh, the, ca- the commander of his armies, uh, a man named Sisera. Um, and uh, the battle took place in the northern part of Israel, uh, up near the plains of Jezreel, and uh, that location was referred to as the field of Ha-Megiddo. Ha-Megiddo. So it came to be known, it was a great, a place of great victory for Israel and for the liberation of Israel from the Syrian domination at the time. Deborah prevailed. There's a remarkable story of Jael, the wife of a man named Heba, who drove a tent stake through the temple of Sisera, the captain of the host of Assyria, of Syria, and of course killed him. Um, Deborah's song of victory that followed praised the fighting men of Naphtali and Zebulun. 10,000 of Naphtali and Zebulun fought in that battle. She cursed a small village called Miraz for its failure to join in the battle, although it was a Jewish outpost, and so on. That took on, that battle took on the mythical reference to Armageddon uh, because it was an actual physical battle fought at that time uh, for the survival of Israel. So it has always had that reference in Jewish history. It came to be then synonymous with both the struggle for Israel to maintain its nationhood and later on when the Israel of God is being spoken of, which is the body of Christ. And again, you know, some will say, well, you are substituting uh, the church for Israel. Israel was always meant to be a type and shadow of the true thing, which is the body of Christ. So there are many references uh, to the body of Christ within the context of Israel and and the Jewish history. They're not one and the same and no one should make the mistake of thinking that a believer must become uh, adherent of the law of Moses in order to be a member of the body of Christ. That was settled at the early church a long time ago. Such a mistake would be catastrophic. Now then, uh, we will see different references to uh, the battle of Armageddon in reference to Gog and Magog as we go forward in this, in this set of studies. But one of the things that distinguishes the final uh, battle in, in, uh, in the book of Revelation 20 when Satan is released is that the enemies come from the four corners of the earth, from all over the earth. And Gog and Magog then come to be reference to a prince uh, 
who opposes God and those who follow the leadership of that prince. And that puts us squarely back into Satan as Gog and Magog being the, leader, the, the people who follow him as they wage a final battle against the people of God uh, at the end of the millennium. So uh, as the Lord comes back out of heaven leading the armies, there is this enormous battle but it doesn't take place in Israel because the enemies of God that are subject to the wrath of the returning Christ are not collected in the landmass of Israel. This is destruction that is rained upon the forces of the beast who has oppressed the whole earth. So this early reference in Scripture is more of a symbolic reference, type and shadow, of the two final conflicts to occur. One at the return, well the the, the staged final conflicts to occur that consummate the age. One will occur at the beginning of the millennium where Jesus puts down the forces of this kingdom of seven heads and ten horns and the ultimate battle, the penultimate of these battles will be when Satan is loosed from the pit and goes up against uh, the great city leading forces from all the corners, from the four corners of the earth. And the final triumph then uh, is revealed. When I come back I want to talk about, the, I want to entitle the next piece, One Who is a, the, the Consistent Loser and I want to talk about Satan in his role in all of these events. So I'm, I'm pulling apart specific subject matters that have been shrouded in both mystery and ignorance based upon the lack of understanding and our tendency uh, in a very soulish and carnal fashion to want to understand from a, a rational standpoint things at the end of the age that were designed to be the fulfillment of that which was spoken before as type and shadow. I'm Sam Solon, we will have that discussion when we come back. We'll talk about the great loser. I'll see you then. Bye now.